Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and as always, we are talking Colorado true crime stories. But today, I am switching things up a little bit. The case that we're going to cover today, the crime didn't actually take place in Colorado, but has affected how crimes in Colorado are dealt with today. So let's get into it. Guy Oliver Morton was born in Springfield, Illinois on September 19, 1956, to Howard and Virginia. He was the oldest of the Morton's nine kids. Guy had a great love for music and attended school in Marion, Iowa. During his years in school, he was both a track runner and a football player, and he was also very involved in a youth group in Cedar Rapids at the People's Unitarian Church. When Guy was 13, he went to a summer camp in France where he actually learned French. But in 1973, when Guy was 17, he was riding as a passenger on a motorbike on the way to work and the bike was hit by a car. Guy spent 21 days unconscious in the hospital with a severe head injury and a dislocated hip. Guy had a reduced mental capacity after the accident. And according to an article about him in the Arizona Republic, Guy's mother had said that, quote, because of the injury, Guy frequently was unable to use or understand words, unquote. While Guy made a recovery after some months, his social circle had changed a lot, as adolescent circles are bound to do. After trying a job in Iowa, Guy moved to Phoenix, and he ended up taking a job as a landscaper in Flagstaff. Guy was 18 years old at the time, and on one particular day had left work to hitchhike to Phoenix. Guy had been attempting to buy a car out of the city, and it turned out that he couldn't afford it. So he planned on going to Phoenix to get his deposit back, and then hitchhiking back to Flagstaff to return to work. But Guy would never return to work after this fateful trip. In June 1975, Guy's employer, Andrew Maisano, called his parents to alert them. Guy's parents, Howard and Virginia, initially reported him missing in Iowa. Guy was not reported missing in Arizona, but Howard had called for information in the summer of 1975. The Mortons would not have contact with Arizona authorities again until 1984. As the years ticked by, Guy's parents contacted multiple authorities, including the FBI, Social Security, area churches, and the Salvation Army. Fourteen years after Guy's disappearance, in 1987, Howard and Virginia made a trip to Arizona. They took 1,000 posters with them that had an age progression of what their son may look like at the time. They spent 10 days in Arizona talking to everyone that they could, ranging from locals up to different authorities. The Arizona Republic newspaper picked up the story and ran it on the front page. This public search in Arizona by the Mortons would catch the eye of a retired sheriff's deputy. Sterling Hillebert, who was a retired sheriff's deputy, was currently a Navajo County Attorney's Office investigator. He would recall a skeleton that was found in the Arizona desert in 1975. It had been found west of New River in the desert, 
and was found by hunters in November 1975. The skeleton had also been found with a broken knife blade in the chest, an obvious sign of foul play. Sterling reached out to a detective about the lead, and Detective Jeff Green matched the skeleton to Guy Morton through dental records and a comparison of photos of the remains on a forensic level. Detective Green notified the Mortons of the match on August 6, 1987. When it was found, the skeleton was originally identified as another person by the medical examiner before realizing that that was not the case. The remains had been kept by the medical examiner until 1984, and then they were destroyed, three years prior to identifying the remains as Guy Morton. The reasoning for the destruction of the remains was mainly for need of space, and the bones were selected for destruction since chances were slim that the identity of the deceased person would ever be found. Judging by both when he went missing and the details of the remains, Guy's death date is thought to be June 23, 1975. His murder investigation was reopened in October 1987. Guy Morton's case is open, active, and unsolved. Howard and Virginia Morton ended up suing Maricopa County in Arizona for the mishandling of their son's body. The Mortons filed the lawsuit on September 22, 1988. The court ruled in their favor. Each parent was awarded $250,000. One of the siblings, Alex Morton, was awarded $100,000. And Guy's other seven siblings were given $50,000 each. The total of the resolution was $950,000. Maricopa County did appeal the decision, but I can't find much after that, so I'm assuming not much happened and the ruling stayed in place. So you may be enjoying this episode, but wondering, what does this have to do with Colorado? Well, the Morton family moved to Colorado in 1980 from where they had been living in Kansas City. And the Mortons started to connect with other families in 1995 when they joined the Front Range chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. Soon after joining, Howard was made the chair of the group. But the Mortons would eventually decide that the group was not quite for them. One of the programs that Parents of Murdered Children promotes is called Murder is Not Entertainment. This pushes for the ending of crime dramas on TV. However, the Mortons really liked these type of TV shows, with a couple of their favorites being Diagnosis Murder with Dick Van Dyke and Murder, She Wrote. Howard had said that they liked these shows because they could cheer on the detective and hope for a crime to be solved. While the Mortons have been the victim of an investigation gone bad, they also understand that there's a lot of good police out there trying to do the right thing and get the bad guy. So Howard decided to create his own group in 2001, and the Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons was born. The aim of the group is to hold law enforcement accountable specifically for unsolved murders. In order to start on the group's mission, he first had to pinpoint how many cases in Colorado were currently unsolved. As of 2008, that number was 1,750, and that number is only from 1970 on. 600 of these cold cases were from Denver alone. The Morton's group offers a number of services, and this is a direct quote and listing from their website. They publish victim rights for co-victims of unsolved homicides, finding, contacting, and offering services to family members and friends of the victim, out of our collective experience, we give guidance to family members about dealing with law enforcement, 
to law enforcement about dealing with co-victims of cold cases, assisting family members seeking to publicize their unsolved murders, acting as a spokesman for co-victims of unsolved murders, maintaining and managing a website where co-victims can find us and learn about us, making accessible to the public a database of all Colorado's unsolved murders, sending co-victims a remembrance card on the anniversary date of their victim's murder or disappearance, organizing annual meetings, workshops, and forums to bring law enforcement and family members together for discussion of issues of common interest relating to these murders, and advocating for cold case co-victims at the state and local levels. Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons has also had a number of accomplishments. Again, this is a list and a direct quote from their website. Launched 10 billboards near scene of crime featuring 12 cold case victims and offering rewards for information leading to arrest and prosecution. Assembled data over a six-year period of every victim of an unsolved Colorado murder dating back to 1970. Joined with COVA to amend the Victim Rights Act to recognize needs of cold case families. CRS 2433.5425, which is the cold case homicide team. The group helped bring about a cold case task force in the Department of Public Safety and required CBI to maintain a database of unsolved murders. This law requires all law enforcement agencies to report unsolved murders to CBI that have been open for three years or more. It also allows cold case family members to ask local agencies to call in CBI's cold case homicide team to assist with their investigation. If the agency declines, it must send a written explanation to the family member found and reached out to over 1,000 friends and family members of cold case victims in nine years, collaborated with the Colorado State University Center for the Study of Crime and Justice to provide guidance to law enforcement agencies about improving communications with cold case co-victims, sponsored research and developed training PowerPoint for law enforcement to help improve communications with families of cold case murder victims, And lastly, amended the Victim Compensation Act so that cold case families are clearly eligible for victim compensation. Previously, the rules required family members to apply for victim comp within one year. Since families frequently suffer secondary victimization due to lack of information from law enforcement that would allow them to make sense of the murder of their loved one, the act was amended at our request with this clarification. The application for an award of compensation under this Part 1 is filed with the board within one year of the date of injury to the victim or within such further extension of time as the board for good cause shown allows. For purposes of this paragraph, good cause may include but is not limited to circumstances in which a crime has remained unsolved for more than one year. And again, those services and accomplishments are an exact listing from the family of homicide victims and missing persons website. In 2008, when the group was really gaining ground, Colorado State was spending $800,000 each year on death penalty cases. And between 1972 and 2008, only one person had actually been sent to execution. A bill was sponsored to end the death penalty in Colorado and use that funding instead for a cold case state unit. The bill did not pass, but instead, a bill was passed that created the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or the CBI. 
state legislature created the CBI in 2007. They were given $67,822 to start solving cold cases. The funding allowed for one single analyst to be able to take in this information. The CBI started with creating two databases of cold cases, one for the public and one to be used by law enforcement agencies. The bill that was passed even allowed for local authorities to call in the CBI's help, which we have seen over and over in a lot of cases that we've covered so far. The accuracy of the data the CBI has from law enforcement agencies is compared periodically with that from the database hosted by the families of homicide victims and missing persons. To this day, the Mortons have continued to try to find their son's killer, and the case remains unsolved. Colorado abolished the death penalty in March of 2020. The three prisoners that were on death row had their sentences commuted to life without parole. The CBI's budget has increased since then. The 2019 budget was a total of $39.4 million. This budget is split between crime scene response, firearms background checks, forensic testing, sex offender registry, identity theft, and a black market marijuana team. So I have one big thought about this case, and I'm pretty sure you know where I'm going to go with this. The overall desecration of Guy Morton's remains. He essentially lost his dignity not once, but twice. First by being murdered, and then second by having his remains destroyed and not laid to rest in the way that his family would have wanted. It does make me wonder if other cold case evidence has been destroyed that could have potentially been solved, or at least the victim been identified. Then what are your chances of finding the truth? I might look into this more and make an informational episode about this because I think it probably happens a lot more than we think because a medical examiner's office or a coroner's office is only so big. At some point, you have to get rid of evidence. So I think I'm going to look into this a little bit more out of my own curiosity. And if I find enough information to create an episode, I will come back with that. But that's my one big musing for this episode. Like I said, this one was a bit different because I usually don't cover cases in which the crime happened outside of Colorado, but the Mortons getting involved in the cold case community and starting their own organization really changed the legislature of Colorado and really brought that to a forefront. And I'm not really sure how other states do it, but this seems kind of unique. So I've got some other interesting episodes headed our way. We will have some historical episodes coming up because we haven't done those in a little bit. And I'll be diving into probably some more well-known crimes here in the next few months. So as always, thank you for listening. But make sure to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. This helps other people find the podcast and it helps our crime clan keep growing. And let me know what you think about the episodes or suggest a crime. I want to cover what you guys want to hear. You can contact me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. As always, the source materials for this episode can be found on AltitudeCrime.com. Well, thank you so, so much for listening to Altitude Crime this week. Like I said, we have some more interesting and longer episodes coming here in the next couple weeks and some stories I'm really excited to tell you. So I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime.
Episode 32, Guy Morton and the Creation of Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.